this is episode number 350 with Joe Foster of the Founder Podcast. What you need is thirst. You need to be a thirsty human. Who is intent on learning. It's a really fascinating, fascinating exploration of human potential. Now. Now. now, the Founder Podcast. Even the greatest entrepreneurs had help. If you want to learn from the most successful founders on the planet, you are in the right place. Branson, Mark Cuban, Tony Robbins, Tim Ferriss, Ariana Huffington, Steve Case, Gary V, Sophia Amoroso, Robert Corcoran, Damon John. Learn from the greatest minds in business today with interviews hosted by Nathan Chan. This is not your average entrepreneur podcast. The Founder Podcast. Hey guys, thank you so much for tuning in. Before we start today's episode, I just want to let you know that our goal at Founder is to help entrepreneurs succeed however we can by giving away high quality content in the form of interviews, blog posts, podcasts, YouTube videos, you name it. We put out so much content to help you. And another interesting project that we're working on right now is partnering with world-class founders like Damon John, Alexa Von Tobel, Greta Van Riel, and so many more to teach crucial skills like negotiation, finance, e-commerce, and so much more. So if you'd like to get access to these free trainings with founders like this, which is 100% free, just go to founder.com forward slash free. Okay, so now let's talk about today's episode. What's going on, guys? Nathan Chan here, CEO and publisher of Founder Magazine. Welcome back to another episode. If you are new, haven't heard this show before, we interview some of the greatest entrepreneurs of our generation. And this one, you're in for an absolute treat. We're speaking to Joe Foster, who founded a company called Reebok, which you might have heard of. Um, you know, this was a family shoemaker business and with Joe's passion for shoes and entrepreneurship, he's turned it into a billion dollar brand um, and really a mainstream brand. The level of growth that this company has gone through is insane. And Joe's going to take us through all these crazy stories what it takes to build an incredible brand like Reebok. Uh, This is a really, really fun episode. You're gonna hear some crazy stories around starting a business, around what Joe is doing now, how he started Reebok, the whole backstory. So that's it from me, guys. If you are enjoying the show, Please do share this with one to two friends that want to start or grow a business that you know might find it useful. We work so hard to produce these incredible episodes and they're all absolutely free. We don't really ask much just to share this with a friend and please leave us a review on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, wherever you're listening. All right, that's it from me. Now let's jump into the show. So the first question that I ask everyone that comes on is, uh, how did you get your job? How did I get my job? Um, I created it. And how did you find yourself uh, doing the work you're doing today? Like, how, how did you start, like Reebok? Oh, well, I mean, that, that, that's a bigger question than you think. <laughs> I started Reebok with my brother back in 1958. But it's, uh, it's a family story. 
And the family story really starts with my grandfather back in 1895. In 1895, he made himself a pair of spike running shoes. And in 1895, that was uh, right at the beginning. He was either, some people say invented, I'm not too sure, but I'm pretty sure he was a pioneer, really was a pioneer. And he, he was a cobbler and he learned his trade from his grandfather, which goes back even further, of course. But his grandfather was a cobbler in Nottingham. Um, Joel lived in Bolton, which is about 60 miles apart, um, but he wished to go to see his, his grandfather because he, he preferred to be a cobbler than a confectioner. His father was a confectioner. Um, and when he's, when he's down with his uh, grandfather, we're pretty sure that all went on. His grandfather used to repair, being a cobbler, repair shoes, but also repaired cricket boots. And in those days, cricket boots had spikes in the bottom. And we're pretty sure he said to the grandfather, why do you have spikes in the bottom of these boots? And the grandfather obviously said, pretty early, well, it gives them grip. When they bat him, when they ball him, when they feel it, they need grip on grass, and this is what gives them grip. Probably that was that light bulb moment then for grandfather. He was a member of the local athletics club in Bolton. And uh, not a good runner, but he enjoyed it. Um, made himself a pair of spikes, yeah, a nice pair of shoes and so on, with spikes at the bottom. And of course it moved him up the order when it came to racing and he came a very unlikely second. Now he wasn't a big lad. <laughs> he was not a big lad at all. So I'm sure his teammates sort of said, hey Joe, um, mm, what are those things you're wearing? Uh, <laughs> and he probably had to admit it and own up to it. So that started his business because everybody wanted a pair of spikes to improve their, uh, their running. Hmm. And uh, that was in 1895. By 1900, he had his own business. So he was a cobbler and he did repairs, but he also had and the front of his shop. He bought this little shop in Bolton um, and one side of his shop, all about the price for cobblers. And on the other side, he also made running shoes. So if you had a pair of running shoes, you could buy a pair, I think then 10 shillings and sixpence, which I uh, don't know how that relates to the Australian dollar, but I'm sure it's less than a dollar. That's <laughs> a uh, very at low price in those days. Um, by 1904, though, he, uh, he actually had to race with Alf in Glasgow, Ibrox, and one race, it was an hour race, and during that one hour race, he broke three world records, which is fantastic. Now, Grandfather also got gold medals at Olympics during the first decade of the 20th century. Second decade, more or less wiped out with the war. World War I, they're repairing their army boots. And they're scrubbing all the mud of flounders off the boots and repairing them. Um, but of course, we get then, then to the 1920s. That was his belly epoch. We have a, a letterhead which shows all the uh, football teams that he was making football boots and training. And the, you probably can't name any that weren't on the list in, in the United Kingdom. Man United, Man City, Arsenal, you name them, they're all on this. They were making the issues. Plus the fact that he was supplying all the Olympic teams with his shoes. And he was the official supplier to the Olympics in Antwerp in 1920. And during the 20s, he had loads and loads of uh, athletes wearing, uh, winning gold medals. And you may have heard of the film Chariots of Fire. Yes. And Chariots of Fire immortalized um, three athletes, Eric Liddell, um, Lord Burley, and uh, Arthur, was it Arthur? Um, Harold Abrams. 
Harold Abrams. They're immortalized in this film, but they wore Joe Foster's shoes. So you can see that business was a real, he knew how to influence his business. Um, unfortunately, he died in 1933. And I wasn't born until 1935. But I did happen to be born on his birthday, which was quite a coincidence. And my grandmother insisted I'm called Joe. So I am named after my grandfather because I was born on his birthday. Four years into my life, World War II. I'm only four when World War II comes on. And I'm 10 when it's over in 1945. And, okay, I, I mean, we didn't feel any difference. There was a war on, blackout, everything. We could see bombs dropping on Manchester. It, you know, that experience, you're, you're a kid. So what? This is what happens. You know, is this not normal? I'm, you know, I'm only four, five, six, seven, whatever it is. Um, but, but after the war, of course, we, uh, uh, I think three years after the war, 1948, Jeff, my brother, he joined the family company. I went to college and stayed on a bit longer. It was 1952 before I joined the Jerry Foster Company. One year later, both Jeff and I are off doing national service. It's compulsory. We're conscripted for national service for two years. So we'll leave the company for two years. Jeff spends his time in, uh, in Germany. And what does he see? Adidas, Puma. He sees a different uh, side to the business. Hmm. We come back and... Uh, 1955, we're back in the family company and saying, look, uh, look guys, the, my father and uncle are, are still running the company by that time. They're, but they're feuding. They're, they're, they're falling out with each other. They don't talk to each other. One is doing hand-sewn shoes. The other one is doing machine-sewn made shoes. And we can't get them to speak. In fact, we're pulling them apart more often. They're fighting than, uh, than they're working together. Okay, we see this as a failing company. They're making the same shoes that grandfather made in 1933, and, the, and, and they continued into the 40s. World War intervened again, which didn't help as far as being a, an athletic shoe business. But after that, they'd not really got together uh, to come back and say, well, what is this business now that we have after 1945? War's over, where are we going? No, it was just continuing with what had been there. And they didn't have any representatives. They, they didn't have any agents. They didn't have any marketing plans. They did nothing. What came through the door, they just made it and sold it. And they become quite, Jerry Foster's have become quite well known uh, through, through the Commonwealth. I suppose in those days it was the empire, but the Commonwealth uh, knew. And this is why we would be selling, they would be selling shoes, Jerry Foster's, into Australia, New Zealand, Canada, you name any Commonwealth country. In fact, we used to get letters um, from Commonwealth countries. A lot of people, a lot, a lot in Africa, they used to send because it was a way of learning English. They used to write letters for uh, the catalogues and they used to send catalogues off. And it, amazingly, they had this wall next to the desk and they used to cut the stamps off these envelopes that came in from all around the world and stick them on the wall. I wish I could have that word. It was a bang incredible. But... Uh, we don't have that well. Anyway, the, the, the history of the Foster Company is fantastic, but father and uncle just didn't get on together. Mm. So by 1958, we got tired of trying to get them to learn. We've been to college to not so much learn a bit more about how you make shoes, because all we knew was how to make athletic shoes, but also for the contacts. 
for the knowledge and the technology of uh, making shoes. And we made an awful lot of contacts, which became very useful when we decided in 1958 we were leaving, set ourselves in the town next uh, six miles down the road. We set ourselves up, all second-hand machinery, a very old building, an old brewery. And uh, there was only one floor we could use, and that was the middle floor. Bottom floor had no windows at all. Must have been something to do with brewing beer or whatever. And, and the top floor, the top floor, the roof was shuttered. It was no good. The, the roof was useless. And it was raining through all the time. So the top floor was occupied with buckets, tins, and everything to catch the water. And once a week, we'd have to go up there and empty these. Um, so we had the middle floor, and it wasn't very secure. So the machine was around the sides. Uh, just to make sure that we didn't drop through the middle. So we set up then and we started our company as Mercury Sports Footwear. Uh, Mercury Sports Footwear, very nice. We were doing quite well. And we started with cycling shoes, of all things. We didn't want to compete too much with the Foster family, so we, we would do cycling shoes. And for 18 months, we were doing quite nicely. And our accountant said, well, you better register your name. Oh, right. Okay, why do we need to do that? Well... Well, uh, you, you're now called Mercury, and if other people start making uh, cycle shoes with the name Mercury, they're trading off, uh, off the good work that you're doing, and you'll have a great deal of trouble stopping them if you're not registered. It'll become a court, but I could get to court, and that would cost money. Okay, so we, um, we had to use a patent agent, and a patent agent, they're the people who would uh, check out whether something's registered. And so we used this guy, and he checked it out, and he said, no, Mercury is pre-registered, you can't have it for footwear and that was uh, Lotus and Delta I believe and um, they were part of British Shoe Corporation big company they offered it to us for a thousand pounds we didn't have a thousand pounds we were fledgling company we were barely sort of eating never mind being able to buy a name so this this patent agent so you'll have to change it and he said uh, bring me ten names uh, not one we've got to check these and we don't want to do them one at a time because there's such a lot of names pre-registered. And he pointed through a window to a sign, and the sign was Kodak. And I said, why Kodak? It's just a made-up name. It doesn't belong to anybody, anything. It's their name. They make it up. If you can make one up, fine, it's great. So we we're back in the office, and uh, we're sitting down. And when you're trying to think of a new name for your company, you know, you... so we, we had bird names, animal names, and... Uh, during 1943, I was only eight years old, and in a race, I won a race, and the prize for this race was a dictionary, a Webster's Dictionary. And a Webster's Dictionary is an American dictionary, not an English dictionary. I don't know how it became, how American Dictionary became the, the prize, however. Uh, whilst we're looking for these names, um, I like the letter R. I thought, hmm, it's a nice, strong letter now. So I pick up my... Webster's American Dictionary, and I'm thumbing through it, and I came across Rebunk, Hardly B-O-K, a small South African gazelle. Oh, great. That goes to the top of the list. Right. So I go along to the paint agent and say, look, you've got your 10 names here, but I want that one. We've got to be in love with this. It's our future, and we just love the idea that we could be Rebunk. As it happened, it came back the only one that was free that we could, we could use. We, we had a couple of, um, not objections, but a couple of considerations that uh, the paint agent thought something might challenge on. One was called Rebo, but they were a, a woman's underwear company. 
But she said, no, they won't bother. They, and it's only phonetics we're talking about at this point. Um, and the other one was Railbrook. Railbrook were Tootles. Tootles were a uh, manufacturer of shirts for men. And he said, but that's all kind of right, because I'm their agent as well, so we won't complain. So we got Reba. But the registrar said, well, I can only put you in the, the B section. What's the B section? Well, the B section means that if anybody comes along to me and says, I want to make a reskin, I'll stop them. Oh, right, you can't stop them either. However, 20 years later, the registrar came back again to say, we've moved you to the A section. He said, because right now, Reebok is a shoe. It's no longer an animal. So that's how we became Reebok. Yeah, wow, crazy. And you're, it, it was a family, uh, so it was a foster family handmaking running shoe business uh, that your father passed to you, which was, which was going, going bankrupt, right? Well, they, were, they didn't owe any money but they were not making any shoes. So what was happening with the company is that the orders were coming fewer and fewer. And they used to make uh, school track shoes for schools. And those, those were bought sort of in the early part of the season for us, that would be March and April. And those started to get smaller and smaller. They also did the rugby boots. And they did quite a, a decent business, but it was just being eroded away. It was, it was going. Uh, and that business, what we saw it, it was going down. The thing is, there was nothing wrong with the business, but they weren't going forward. And it, eventually, it would fail. It would fail because the orders would just finish altogether. Um, that's why we left. And uh, I think it was about, like, about 18 months after we left that, uh, because my father had said to us, look, when, when Bill was gone and I've gone, this company is going to be yours. And uh, so I started saying, well, yeah, we don't want you to go. Uh, but this business will be gone before you go. Mm. And we'll be far too old to do anything about it. I say about 18 months after we had left, uh, Bill did die. Uh, my father went on until 1976. So we left in 58. We were waiting until 1976 for my father to go. Then there, there would definitely have been no business at all. And, and when we left, all the, all the uh, football teams that uh, grandfather had been dealing with, they were no longer dealing with them. And so they, they missed an opportunity there. So we, you know, it was obvious to, to us that why, why had we lost this opportunity? What, what had happened? And when, when, we, when we left, the, the football business was then in the hands of Adidas, Puma, and one or two others. Too difficult for us to break into. We needed more influence. But we were good on athletics. We were okay. We, <clears throat> we got into athletics. And I used to do the selling. And I would go around to retailers and present my products, Reebok, and um, the retailer, he would look at me and say, uh, who's Reebok? Well, you know, with this, we've done whatever. And he'd say, well, look, I've got Adidas and I've got Dunlop. Why do I need Reebok? Yeah, that struck on why do we need Reebok? He didn't need Reebok. As, well, as far as he was good, yeah, he, he just didn't need it. So I realized then that I shouldn't be selling to a retailer. I should be selling to a consumer. I needed to sell to athletes. Those were my customers. And uh, if, I, if, the, if the customer wanted it, 
they would ask for it and the retailer would have to stock it. So he, he became a facilitator as it were. To me then, that's, that's what the retail trade was. Uh, they were facilitating. But um, fortunately, um, in the UK, we had the three A's, the Amateur Athletic Association, and they had a handbook. And every athletic club in the country were in this book, in the name of the secretary and his address. Uh-huh. Just a matter. <laughs> a letter, a few letters went out there. I think maybe two or three hundred letters went out there. And I offered 15% discount that uh, if, they, if they wanted to buy, or anybody in the club wanted to buy a shoe, we got 15% discount to buy direct. Um, or we could, we could appoint agents within the club, and the agent would get the 15%. So, right, I got a lot of agents. A lot came to me, and our business really took off very well. I even got phone calls then from retailers who were obviously quite close to the club, and you, you're selling direct to uh, the athletic club. If you stop doing that, we'll stock your shoes. Well, well that's a victory. <laughs> but um, I said, well, no, this, this is how we're selling these days. Uh, we only offer a small discount. If you want to buy them, you will get them at wholesale price. And we'll send everybody to you. Don't worry about it. But we're not stopping our agents. It was fantastic. Business growing nice. But as a, the athletics business in the UK was small compared to, say, the football. And if I wanted to get my business bigger, I had to, I had to get to the States. The United States, there, every college, every university, there was coach. And coach was God. And you could get to, to the, if you had any athletics ability, you went to university on that. Same with the colleges. So that was a big market. I knew that was a big market. Mm-hmm. So in 1968, uh, the British government and their wisdom decided they'd like to assist the sports trade to export. Start exporting you. So what we'll do, we will uh, pay for a stand, we'll pay for a return airfare, and we'll pay half of your hotel bill for you to go to America to the NSGA show, which is the National Sporting Goods Show in Chicago in February. I tell you, February. It's cold, 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 cold in Chicago. Oh, I've never been as cold in my life, but it's cold. However, the show is brilliant. And uh, I, I got a lot of people interested. And they said, well, where, where do we buy your shoes? And I said, England. And, uh, New England? No, no. England, across the water. Oh, well, no. That wasn't, it, it was, um, if you get somebody in, the, in, in America, you know, we'll, uh, we'll buy your shoes. Okay. So I needed the same thing. What I needed to do was to get them to want shoes. They, they didn't want them. They, you know, they were very interested. So I needed a key. At that time in America, running as a category was growing and growing fast. Um, I mean, it was driven by Runner's World, which was the magazine. And that magazine, that was a Bible. So uh, we advertised in the magazine, which we got some nice direct uh, sales into America, but this, this is not what we wanted. We wanted distribution. And this is 1968. It took me until 1979 to get that distribution. But in between time, with Runner's World promoting running and running growing incredibly, uh, along came Nike. Nike grew with this growth of running. Nike grew tremendous. Uh, And Runner's World started then to rate the shoes. And you could be the number one one shoe. And it happened. That's about two or three years. And number one shoe, the demand for that shoe was immense. 
so so big that nobody could get in shoes. Uh, the, the retailer just couldn't get Nike couldn't make them if it was Nike. I think it might be Nike New Balance, but Nike couldn't make the shoes quick enough. They were buying them from abroad. So of course you, you you've got to set things up. So six months, nine months before the stocks really came in to fill, fill that demand. After three years, Bob Anderson had more or less been battered to submission to say he can't do this to the retail trade. And so uh, he changed it and he changed it to a star rating. So if you've got five stars, it could be three or four shoes would get five stars and they'd be, they'd be the top shoes. So instead of just one shoe getting all the demand, this would be spread across three or four shoes, which would much better. So I realized that what we needed was a five star shoe. And if we, if we could do that, that would be the key. So I worked on that, worked hard on that, and came up with a five star shoe. By 1978, we had the shoe at the uh, uh, Commonwealth Games in Edmonton and we did well we got some gold medals we had capes we had a few top athletes in our shoes um, so by February of 79 I had my shoe I got some good results on it knew where we were going and I exhibited this at uh, Chicago in uh, 1979 I had came out came along they wanted 25,000 pairs uh, that's about six months work for our factory <laughs> But I knew that if we if we got somewhere to America, we'd need help. And I already had help at one side there with uh, with Barter. I had a good friend at Barter, and uh, we we could get some production. But also, we wanted a better price, which was not surprising because we knew at that time the production was going to the Far East. There, you could get the shoe made for less than half the price we could make them in the UK or even Barter. So we were a bit prepared or getting prepared for that, and. Uh, so we now had to wait from, uh, from February to August when the new uh, ratings came out. And uh, Paul Feynman had also shown good interest at, uh, in, in February. He said, I'd, I'd love to distribute shoe, but we need, we need a five-star shoe. We need to get, you know, that would, that would help us get onto the market. Um, so in August, early August, I think maybe in the end of July, I phoned Paul because I knew, knew the runner's world that go get get a magazine. Um, an hour later, he came back, and, and he came back and said, "Joe, Aztec, five stars, fantastic. Oh, that's it. We've made it." He said, "But also your track bike and your and your racing shoe both got five stars as well. So we got three five star shoes. So we really had the key, and with Paul Fireman." We'd, he was the door. He was the gateway. Mm, interesting. So for a long time, you were producing the shoes locally. Like how many at, you know, in the 19, you know, 1978, like how many, how many shoes would you move per year? And how many, how many people would you, how, how big was your team? And what did staff look like back then? Well, back then we probably had about uh, 25 staff and we were making probably 2000 per a month. It wasn't wasn't big. Two thousand a week, uh, and it wasn't very big. But I mean, we, we, I'm, I'm looking at look. If we're going to expand our company, we know we're going to have better volumes, and we know we have got a better price. So it was with that knowledge, and with that knowledge, uh, just having got uh, America on board with Paul Feynman, he he's ready to go. And of course, regrettably, we had this. The Jeff unfortunately became ill, became ill, and he died. 
So right at that time, and it was quite an incredible time that we're ready because Jeff Jeff would have been going down to Barter, taking the production because he looked after the factory. That was what he wanted to do was to look after the production of the factory. He was very happy doing that, and I could do everything else, which is what I was doing. Uh, so Jeff would have then taken the transfer packages down to Barter and stayed with Barter, getting them to work. Unfortunately, because he wasn't able to do that, we had I had to get a young guy from Barter who came and did some. Production, but Barter changed the shoe. <laughs> Barter gave us a big problem. It was a big problem, and in another word, way, it was a bit of luck because they had their own uh, rubber factory at Barter, and EVA w- was a new cushion material, and it was made the same as rubber, made in the same factory, but they hadn't had any experience of this. So they'd obviously, they made a batch which didn't cure good enough, and so the shoes that they sent to America, 20,000 pairs went to America, and a big proportion of those shoes, they were failing because it was collapsing, the midsole. Oh. They end up, you know, Paul was disaster, but more than that, they changed the shape of the shoe as well. You know, we had an aggressive look to the shoe. The silhouette was more aggressive, and they changed it because they were shoe producers, and what they'd done to make it easier for the sewing machines to sew round instead of have these nice square, aggressive look. So a big complaint by Paul, Paul told me, this is problem. <clears throat> we came over, went to Barter. Paul never paid for those shoes. So what he was doing, he was getting the orders. Anything that came back, he just replaced. So that gave him some time to, to work because Barter would give him credit. But when we went to the Far East, there's no credit. Your bank have either got to back you or you've got to have the cash. So you need, you need the letter of credit. And Paul had no history. Uh, the bank wouldn't lend in the money. We were not big enough to lend the money. So it gave time to find somebody. And the person that uh, we found, in fact, Paul found him, was Stephen Rubin. Stephen Rubin was uh, Pentland Industries. Pentland Industries, they were in London. But they, they were all, they, he had a number of companies, and one of them was ASCO. And ASCO was a sourcing company. And they, ASCO, were out in the Far East sourcing the companies, sourcing the shoes. So... For a piece of the company, Steve Rubin and Penton gave, gave Paul credit line. Yep. And it was very fortunate he had a credit line because running shoes were doing very nicely. At that time, Stephen wasn't interested in Reebok at all. He, he just thought by funding Paul in America, Paul would do some uh, selling to the big stores in America for own brands, which he, Stephen would produce in the Far East. However, the running shoes, Business was very nice when Arnold Martinez, who was a tech rep in Los Angeles, his, uh, his wife was going to aerobic classes with her girlfriends. And they were coming back really excited, really happy about this. And I was asking, What's it all about? And uh, <clears throat> Frank told them, Well, we're, we're exercising to music. Great. You know, the girls loved it. Arnold wanted a piece of that, and he went down there to have a look what's going on and saw the instructor. The instructor wearing tennis shoes. Half the, uh, the class were wearing tennis shoes. The rest, no shoes at all. Nice. He thought, what an opportunity. Why don't we make a shoe for aerobics? So he went up to Paul Feynman in Boston and said, Paul, you know, this is a nice new category that's growing here. Why don't we make a, an aerobic shoe? Yeah, I love leather and soft cushion and the ladies, they'll, they'll love it. 
Paul said, no, come on, we're doing well with running. Why, why do we, you know, we can't play around with something that a few girls are, are sort of taking part in in Los Angeles. Arnold wasn't that easily put off and he went round to the back and had a word with the production people and he persuaded them to make him 200 pairs of shoe, shoes and glove leather, uh, and all white, which they did. Arnold gave these to the instructors and some of the class and all of a sudden we had, we had something, oh, something changed. This was a total change. Uh, what, what had happened is that Nike, Adidas, they were known to be male, sweaty. This was for women. We, we've been on the market two or three years. Or we were known a bit in running, mm. but generally across, the, across America, nobody had heard of us. We became the woman's shoe, the woman's fitness shoe, and that took off. Being in L.A., it was picked up by film stars, whatever, Sybil uh, Shepherd wore them uh, to pick up her Emmy. Uh, we had Jane Fonda using them in our videos. And Sigourney Weaver eventually started, you know, made a special pair of stompers. So it started to grow. It took a few years, as anything would do. But once it took off, that was it. It went wild. And we had a growth from something like $9 million to $30 million, up to $90 million, then $300 million, $900 million, all in successive years. The growth was incredible. Wow. And this was being supported, financed by Stephen Rubin. But the other biggest problem was, how do you, how do you get production mm. for that sort of volume? Unfortunately, and then again, it's where your luck, your luck comes in. Fortunately, Nike were having trouble. They, they'd hit a peak and they were coming down a bit. So they were pulling back their production out of some of the factories and Reebok were able to get in. So that, that was absolute luck. Because otherwise, the business would have, uh, would have starved the market. Mm, crazy. So in the 80s, that's when you got into aerobics? 82. Yeah. When it started. Yeah. Yeah. And that's what really accelerated the growth of the brand. Absolutely, yes. It accelerated its growth because it went... I mean, the, the influence was incredible. When you get the film stars were in it. And uh, we had Wendell Niles, who was also in Los Angeles. And, and he got us involved in uh, a pro-celebrity tennis tournament in Monte Carlo. So we were hitting all these... Uh, areas, people, places that were so impressionable for people. And so the influence was incredible. And, uh, you know, in, in this pro-celebrity, we had people like Frank Sinatra, um, Roger Moore, uh, you, you name them all. There were so many of these people, with, uh, John Forsyth, uh, Jane Seymour, they were all wearing the shoes. So this, this was incredible, incredible influence. And it just made, well, it grew the company. By the time I, I left in the, the end of 1989, I retired. That time we were about 3.8 billion. And uh, I'd been putting on distribution throughout the world. I put the handlers on for Australia and New Zealand. I spent some time down there with them. And then we got to a certain point where all I'm doing is I'm at 35,000 feet. I'm flying between different countries. I'm going around the world about twice a year and visiting people. I, 
I arrive at an airport, I'm picked up by a limousine, I go to the best hotels and I'm sitting in meetings. And by that time, we become number one. You know, we'd overtake Nike, we'd overtake Adidas and become the number one company. Um, and I thought, well, you know, I'm, I'm no longer, it's no longer the chase. This is no longer the, the journey. It's, it's you know, for me, the company now is big, really big. We have lawyers looking after the brand. We have accountants sort of making sure that everything works. And uh, so the energy of the thrill of, of building that brand, it had gone. It's something then that uh, I thought for me, I just don't want to be just waving a flag and being an ambassador. I'm still an ambassador, but I, I just retired from the company from a permanent job. So you still, you still remained uh, uh, like uh, on the board or something though, right? No, no. I, I, I retired totally from it, but it is a bit like um, the Eagles and uh, hotel California. You can check out where you can never leave. I was always brought back for something. And so, no, I, I didn't go on the board or anything. I didn't want to do that. It, because, again, you, you're really talking sort of positive numbers, numbers, and it's crazy. <clears throat> so uh, for me, it was stepping back. And, yes, they, they would bring me over because when, when they said, well, what's this? And also the IRS became interested because uh, the brand – it is really held in the UK and is still in the UK, the brand, but the uh, the operation is in America, and I, and I think the IRS wanted to pick up a bit more of the uh, the money from that. <laughs> so <clears throat> and there, were, there were numerous things, uh, lawsuits at different various uh, places. It, it happens when you get big, and you know I, I used to think that oh, when we get big, when no need for solicitors would be too big. No, it just got more and more. Because <laughs> I use solicitors for different various things we'd escaped from a, a numerous, I would say, numerous problems that would have driven us under. Yeah, it's, uh, so you, you need lawyers. And the lawyer that I had first used to, uh, to make sure we were still in business at one time, he was an intellectual property lawyer. And... So I needed that. Going around the world, I needed an intellectual property lawyer to help do the deals. And uh, it was a very interesting time, but that had finished. It was time for me to go. Yeah, that makes sense. So did you start any other businesses? What did you do? Well, for three years, I was happy to uh, relax and sort of take it easy in Tenerife and just let the world go by and play around with one or two things, but uh, I probably started to miss not being 35,000 feet up. I think it had been a bit of a drug that uh, needed to be on an airplane, needed to be flying somewhere. So it, it took a bit of a while to sort of settle down and just totally relax. And, and for quite some time, that's all I do. I used to go to the, uh, at all the NSGA shows, all the American shows, and in Europe, because the, uh, the, big, the big ones that were in Europe, we used to go there. And that, that was ISPO. I don't think it's ISPO anymore, is it? No. I mean, these things have changed. But uh, we used to go and do that. Uh, and as I say, the contact is always there. What, what happened a few years ago, probably four or five years ago now, a good thing that Adidas did, because Adidas, of course, had bought the company by then, the good thing Adidas did was to set up uh, an archive in Boston. 
And that was great because I had a lot of stuff, bits and pieces, all hanging around in various places I had and in the attic. And so it was good to get those into the archive because they, they have been very useful. So I have a good relationship now with the archive. And uh, we usually get to Boston once a year, uh, maybe more on occasion. Possibly next year we may go again to help promote the book because the book is because out over there now and uh, <clears throat> we'll try and give it some energy because that, that's my next uh, goal. The next goal is book to become a number one bestseller. If we can do that, then yeah, we'll have achieved something else. Apart from that, um, really, it's been uh, just driving through Europe. Travel, travel has always been there. And uh, so traveling through Europe, I, I go, we meet up with a lot of the distribution I put on, whether it's France, Germany, Italy, Switzerland, Spain. So we travel, meet up with somebody, have a couple of days, have some nice meals, sit down, relax and drink some nice wine. So life is not bad. It's good to do that. Uh, for the last uh, seven years, so I've been writing the book and it's not been all writing, but it, uh, it surprised me it would take so long because as a shoemaker, I tended to put too many anecdotes in, too many things, well, this happened, no. yeah, I'm persuaded and say, yeah, move a bit that way, do a bit this, do a bit different, get more emotion into it, because you, you tend to uh, just, oh, well, this happened or that happened. <laughs> just, you know, let's tell it as it really happened. So needing help, and it, to get it there, once, even once it's finished, it takes about 18 months, two years to get the... Uh, get with the publishers and get them happy with with the story and to choose the name properly again so setting up the book we had to do it right and that took took a while so now we're a bit locked down with covid it's not uh, not allowing us to travel much uh, but when it's over it'll be interesting to travel all my uh, the people that i put on as distributors we've sent them all a book and they're all happily reading that so yeah yeah we, we're busy and it's good Oh, that's awesome. So I'd love to kind of um, break down some of your journey, Joe, because you would have seen some like just crazy things had like, you know, some wild stories and some great lessons from your experience of building like such a large, well-known household name brand. So I'd love to know, like, what do you think it takes for people right now where they might be building something and they want to build like some, like a business of like the size that you've created and a brand of, uh, that is as well known as you. What do you think that that takes? Well, it takes a lot of luck and, and it takes stupidity maybe because you've got to stick with it through everything. It's belief. You really have got to have belief that you're doing things and you, you will get there. And, oh, so many times. I, I had at least six attempts with distributors in America during the 11 years from first going over there to actually get in with Paul Feynman. And you learn lessons. You learn that, uh, uh, how do they sell? Because it's the same lesson I had to learn in the UK. You know, just to sell to the retailer is not enough. You need to sell to the consumer. So you need to get the consumer interested. So that... To do that, you've got to have influencers. Something has to influence them to buy. And so you have to find out what that key is for your particular business. Uh, and, and today is so different. I mean, in my days, we didn't have mobile phones. 
we didn't have computers. I mean, the most technological thing I had was a, a calculator. And, you know, and that was it. So without that, I mean, I had to fly. I had to move. I had to go take the journeys. I don't think you need to do that the same now. I'm, I'm sure people still can travel. But, I mean, the way that Zoom and all these things have come on there, you know, we can speak. You're in Australia. You're in Melbourne. I, I'm here in the middle of France. And this is brilliant, you know. You don't, we don't get any breaks. Okay, technology does at times uh, <laughs> let you down a bit. But, you know, what we can do with technology now is incredible. Plus the technology and the product. But you, know, you have to have belief in your product. And I believe you've got to start when you're young. Because if you're not young, when we started, I was 23, Jeff was 25. We were indestructible. Yeah, what can go wrong? You know, let's have a go at it. Nothing could go wrong. We were, we were too young for that to, to happen. You know, we could stand a few knocks, as we did with the name. And in fact, we'd only been four years into our business when I get a letter from Adidas. We started off, our silhouette started off with two, uh, two stripes and a T-bar. They thought uh, that uh, infringed the, the brand of three stripes. We were delighted. Yeah, we were delighted. They're taking notice. We're here. We've arrived. And, okay, so we have to change our, uh, our silhouette. A little bit of thinking, a little bit of help. And we came up with the, the, what is now known as the vector. It was the arrow shape on the side of the shoe. And so, you know, we now have a recognisable silhouette. And so you, you have to have something recognisable. When you, when you really get, why do people want, can people notice your shoe? Visibility to me is so important. And okay, we can get a lot of visibility on, a, on an athletic shoe because you can put your name on, you can put your, uh, your silhouette, but people can look at it. And not a lot of things in life you can do that with. But you know, once, you, once you've got that silhouette and, that, uh, and, you, and your name, and you just keep pushing it. You've, you've got to get that visibility. You know, if you look at Ford, Ford have a, an oval with Ford written in it, and it's never changed, probably since Henry Ford uh, had it designed or designed it himself. And that continual recognition. Uh, when Adidas bought, uh, bought Reebok, they, they changed the lettering, and they started what they called a delta. It was like a triangle delta on the side of the shoe instead of the, uh, and the silhouette we know now which is Vector. And of course, nobody knows it. Why should they? You know, we'd had the Union Jack as well. And the Union Jack was fairly important to, to really develop in the product. Because Paul Feynman wanted to use the Union Jack. I said, we're going to have trouble in the UK if you put Union Jack on a Korean shoe. Then, uh, everybody's going to jump down our throat saying it can't have a Union Jack. But in America, he said, everybody in America um, knows the Union Jack. Which you know, like, hmm. Well, you know, and that was it, because he thought it would cost millions, millions to, to really get people to know the Vector, or in those days also the roads, the uh, Starcrest, which is the two points. And it's, uh, so you've got to find something which can be recognisable, unique, if you can get unique, difficult to get unique, but, you know, it's still out there. And now with technology and where things are, I'm pretty sure it's like you, you've got your, T-shirt, not founder with an E. You don't need to get that recognizable. And I, I recognize, I see it. I, you know, we're, we're on uh, social media. So I, I see your, uh, your posts coming up there. And, uh, you know, 
that's the difference. And the fact that you wear it, the fact that you, you know, that comes up every time. It, so it's repetitive, it's seeing this thing, and then people, it sticks. And what sticks, it's not just founded with an E, it's an R. And, you know, you, you colour the letter R, I think, in different colours. I think I've seen it in red. Uh, and so, and I, and I think it's that, it's that little tweak, that little bit of difference. So it's possible. It's out there. And what you're doing, you're, you're obviously growing a, a tremendous brand. And, and that's your brand name. So don't play around with it. Don't change the lettering. That just dilutes your brand. So for anybody starting off, they've got to try to do some very basic things. First of all, you need a good product. You've got a good product. You know it sells. So you've got to buy it. But then people have to see why they're buying it. Oh, well, we've heard of them. We know them. So uh, and there's a, a, that, that just grows things. So things can grow if you're willing to stick with it and keep repeating the image. So um, anybody today, and I, I think everything moves a bit. You know, it may go around, it doesn't go around in circles, it goes into spirals. So, so you're seeing something, the same thing, but at a different level. And so I think there's, you know, anybody, anybody young, yeah, if you've got ambition, plus you have to love what you're doing. Yeah, you have to be in love with it. You have to have passion for it. If it's just a job, if you're just a nine to five, that's all it will ever be, nine to five, and there won't be there won't be that result. But yeah, you know, yeah, just just keep going. I'm curious. Do you think it's easier to start a business now compared to back when you started? It's always been easy to start a business. It's succeeding in a business, which is the difficult part. Um, you know, people can have startups. Depends what you're really looking for. If, you, if you're just looking for a living and you're happy to do that, that's one thing. If you've got ambition and you're looking to a future and you think, wow, we could do this, or wow, we could do this. You, you've got to have imagination and determination. So I don't think it's any more The opportunities are different. I think the opportunities are, are really different, but they're there. And there will be more and more and more. And I'm sure that COVID is giving a lot of opportunities for some people. Mm. Really, you know, and technology for one thing. You know, this has really come along and direct selling. You know, all, all that has just grown immensely with, with, with uh, COVID. And okay, some of it may dip. The retail uh, street business may improve a bit. We all like to shop. We all like to go there. It's, it's, it's entertainment, going shopping, is you know, going around stores and things. So we all like need a bit of that. You can see a lot on television, but where is this going to? You know, where are we going with technology? Are we going into some three-dimensional where you know it's, you, you're almost there? I and mean, we know now watching sport, uh, in sport and cricket, you uh, I think cricket has come on tremendously because we're where you used to sort of look and you'd see somebody running up to the stumps, so you, you did he hit that ball? You don't know where he's hit until you see somebody running. To catch it now, you're right in there, yeah. And they can slow it down. They can show this. It's incredible. What I think, I think cricket has been probably one of the best examples of how the business has changed. We have a dog in the picture. <laughs> our our dog has just walked across. <laughs> but uh, you know, and, and I think that's where people have got to really pick up on, and with you know the um, the technology and photography and cinematography. It's, 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 it's incredible. 
So I, I think that uh, there are so many opportunities, which, no, it's not my, uh, you know, not my time. My time was way back before we even had anything like this. So uh, to, to think where you could, and it, it's immense, it's immense. The world is growing bigger. And then, oh, the world is growing smaller in a way because we, we can cover it, we can get through hours. I don't know how many miles away are we, 12,000 or something like that. And, you know, and, and this is brilliant. We could be in the next room. Yeah, it's, it's that good. So you don't need to spend all that uh, time journeying. But what you do need is you need the enthusiasm, and you, you need to know the right people to talk to, um, the right lessons to listen to. You, you can listen to a lot of things. A lot of people have a lot to say, but is it uh, is it useful? You know, is it? Can you can you make anything of it? Uh, I, I tell you how to make some shoes back in nineteen fifties. But be no use to today. <laughs> That's why my book says I'm a lousy shoemaker because uh, my my shoemaker made good shoes back in those days. <laughs> but today, I mean, you know, I've gone onto the selling, onto the building of a brand. But it wasn't a matter of selling Joe Foster; it was a matter of selling Reebok, the name. And what, if you can sell that, you you will become successful. And I, I think we made it. Hmm. So. We have to work towards wrapping up, Joe. Um, you've shared a wealth of like how you've built this incredible brand. And I'm curious as well, like, do you have any stories or any, any really critical lessons that you'd like to pass on with our audience around business building and building in it like a, like a well-known brand? Well, I, I think you have to be very much in touch with your consumer. And you also have to know that whatever you do, you'll get a problem. You'll get many problems. But with the problem, you've got to see if you can make, turn that into an advantage. Mm -hmm. And you know, we, we always used to think, how can we turn, turn things to an advantage? So Adidas complained about what we're doing. So we end up with a, a better silhouette. Again, I'm trying to sell my product. I have to go to the direct to the consumer. I, I have to go away from the common route or, or the volume route to get to the consumer first. And we had, uh, and I, I think one of the important things is that whenever you get somebody asking you a question, and we used to get it by email, we used to get it by different things, it's a lot of people, if they haven't got the answer, don't respond. But the important thing is, and I used to say this through, with our business, look, People are around the world, they're all selling Reebok, they're all part of Reebok. And if somebody asks you a question, because we, we have people who look after different territories, if they ask you a question, respond. If you have not got the answer, still respond and say, well, good question. Don't know about that, but I'll get back to you. So you've got to have that closeness. We, um, we didn't get many complaints about Reebok in my early days, but I did get one complaint, which started to bubble up pretty big. I got 50 letters of complaint that uh, our shoes were turning the runner's socks blue. Well, the shoe we were producing was always blue, but and, and they always used to run across country and in wet conditions. But it happened on this occasion, we had to go to the uh, tanner and say, what's happened to our shoe? And they've forgotten to wash out the excess dye. And so... All this, as soon as the runners were running across anything wet, were in wet weather, they were coming back and the wives were getting really annoyed. 
all the socks were turning blue. So just, we got the answer. We answered everyone and said, look, let's get back to you. What we did do is we sent them all a, a, a new pair of socks, but they were blue socks. We sent them blue socks. <laughs> we didn't send them white socks. <laughs> so we sent them blue socks. And also said, look, your next pair of shoes will give you 15% off. But the big lesson of that was so many people would not even have bothered, but they won't buy your, your Reeboks next time. Anybody who bothered, I thought they were always going to be worth turning into an agent, making, making them part of your company. The fact that they bothered meant that they would talk to other people. So to give them a good deal, 15% off your next year. And if you wanted to become an agent, you could earn 50% of all the shoes you sold. So it was turning your, uh, your problems around and, uh, and to make into an asset. So we, we may have got 50 new customers and 50 new believers and 50 new agents. Your business was growing again. And, and I think at any time when you meet anything like that, uh, you've got to take it and see if you can make the most of it and turn it around. Yeah, I love that. And I'm curious as well, like why did you end up selling to Adidas? Well, I didn't. That was, uh, that was done after I left. And, uh, and I think it wasn't a matter of selling to Adidas. I think Adidas wanted to buy the company because they wanted more momentum in America. And, and Reebok had got to the point where it was a bit stagnating. It was like, and you don't plateau. In life, you don't plateau. If you do, when you stay there, you will go down. You've got to keep moving incrementally. You've got to say, how do we keep going? How do we move? What's the next step move? But Reebok had plateaued. Um, the management had said, we need a new management. After a certain while, maybe you get tired, maybe you run out of it. Uh, with me, when that was, no. I'd done what I thought I enjoyed, and that was me. But by the time Adidas were coming in, the management needed changing. Um, who knew whether Adidas would be good or not? But it was ex- it was a good move for Adidas because uh, it moved them up. They're now about twenty five billion dollars in revenues, uh, so you know, that worked for them. But I think in working for them, they just let uh, they didn't do anything for for Reebok. Um, of late, as I've said, they they are moving in the right direction. But I mean, now it is up for sale. They 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 now have decided that they're going to sell Reebok. They have a problem because they know exactly how to make Reebok a big company. They've done it with Adidas. They know exactly how to do it. The problem is it's a competition, a competing company. They're in the same areas. Good for Adidas to to grow their brand. For Reebok, stagnate. It's down there. But, you know, we we have the best history of any sports company. The best. We can go right back. We can show you everything. So it comes as a big name. Yeah, to revive it and make it big again, not a problem, unless you're Adidas, who don't know how to do but they do know how to do it, but have that dilemma of are they bringing a competition? If they sell it, that's still a dilemma, because will somebody else be the competition, bring it into competition? No point in buying a company if you're not going to make it work, and it's going to cost somebody a billion dollars, maybe two billion dollars. So, uh, yeah, we, you know, I think selling, selling Reebok, it was more that uh, Adidas wanted to buy Reebok. And selling it was probably just cashing your chips in uh, for the shareholders. So uh, 
the book is the book is how they're telling the story. So yeah, things are going, going and growing. How how does it feel like seeing your baby out there, and you can't influence the growth of it anymore? Well, it's like any child or whatever, isn't it? What can you do? <laughs> they will go their own way. <laughs> whatever you do, you're not you're not going to tell them exactly what to do. You might point them in directions and whatever, but no, you know it's whatever it is, whether it's a boy or a girl. Is if it's a woman, then you know it's a nice woman to have Reebok. Mm. It's a woman's shoe. I mean, you know, we got that. You can only do so much. Uh, you try and sit on it, and it won't grow. It's got to self-develop, and, and let's hope that uh, that's it in a good way. Yeah, I, I got a good feeling. I've not got a problem with that. It's, uh, yeah, I, I think I had a problem when when Adidas bought it, but I do realise why. Um, but I think now, no, let's have a look. I think they have a problem now, and it's not a bad problem. You know, they're a big company, but. Uh, It'll be a nice problem for somebody to get the emotion back into the uh, into the brand. It's there. There's plenty of things about it, but uh, you know they need that emotion that really uh, was there as we grew, because it was fantastic during that growth period. Everybody loved you. Fantastic. <laughs> um, similar growth period. I don't know. I'd, I'd leave that that door open. I, I think somebody could get us up to number three. Overtaking Adidas and Nike, I don't know, but it'd be a good challenge. Mm. Like challenge. And there we go. And growing the company, what were some of the funnest things or funnest times of that journey? Because it would have been a wild journey. It was wild. Yeah, we got to the point. I think when the aerobics thing took off, we weren't growing the company. We were being pulled along. The demand was such. It was a question of. The talent had to be keeping up with the demand, and uh, it was exciting because we, we did so many things. Um, the Monte Carlo tournaments with all the stars uh, being part of that was incredible. I, I, to become the number one company, number one brand, you know, at um, nearly four billion, becoming was incredible, and that was in the late eighties. Uh, you know, achieving the five stars with not one, but three shoes. These were incredibly uplifting moments. And uh, I mean, unfortunately, you know, Jeff only got part of the way. Uh, and uh, sorry, I suppose really that charged me to finish the job, to really get up there and get us to how far could we go. Uh, and, and that worked, uh, that was really good. <clears throat> but like we alluded to earlier, there's only so much you can do the brand has to, uh, has to have many people and it has to have uh, a life of its own. But wherever we can give it some energy, we will do. Mm. Lovely. So, look, um, we'll work towards wrapping up, Joe. The final question I have for you is just uh, where is the best place people can find out more about uh, yourself and Shoemaker and go and grab a copy? It's going through, I don't know what, uh, whether it's in Amazon in Australia now, but it, it is, you know, it is. It, it, they can obtain it from Amazon. And uh, the only way they can get a signed copy is to come through our website uh, because we can't move, we can't do much these days. But if they want a signed copy, they can use our uh, website to get a signed copy. And I think it's available in 
other bookshops maybe, and in different forms. We've got uh, audio. I think we have an audio, which is going out as well. Amazing. Well, look, um, thank you so much for your time, Joe. You've been extremely generous and congratulations on all your success and just being so humble with sharing your incredible wild ride and journey with our audience. It's been an absolute pleasure to speak with you. Thank you again for your time. Well, Nathan, it's been great talking to you. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Hey, guys, I hope you enjoyed this interview. As you might already know, our mission at Founder is to help tens of millions of people every single week with our content, either start or grow their business, which is exactly why we're partnering with world-class founders such as Damon John, Alexa Von Tobel, Greta Van Riel, and so many more to teach crucial skills such as negotiation, finance, e-commerce, and so much more. So if you'd like to get access to these free exclusive trainings, please go to founder.com forward slash free. These are 100%. We go super in depth on teaching a particular topic, and I know that you're going to love them if you enjoy this podcast. So just go to founder.com forward slash free. All right, guys, I'll see you in the next episode.